Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks with you about everything cooperative this February 2015. We're at Black History Month on a a snowy day outside, but a beautiful, beautiful day. It looks like a picture when you look outside the window. I like to go out and play in the snow. I don't like to live in it. This is cold. (laughs) This is cold. It was great driving in this morning. I thought there would be trouble, so I got out an early start, was able to get here because I really wanted to talk to you about education. In this last week of Black History Week, uh, Carter G. Woodson is is known as the father of this uh, Black History Month. Carter G. Woodson said, "If you can control a man's thinking, you can. You don't have to worry about his actions. If you can control his mind, you don't have to worry about his actions. When you determine what a man shall think, you do not have to concern yourself about what he will do. If you make a man feel that he is inferior, you do not have to compel him." to accept an inferior status. So the miseducation of the Negro is the book that he wrote that famous about, you know, uh, it's amazing um, about this miseducation because when Jessica Gordon-Nimhard was on the program the first week of the month, she talked about this, this education, this cooperative knowledge, this this history. She said there's a long and strong history of cooperative practices, particularly in the legacy of African-Americans promoting and practicing cooperative ownership. But it's not known. It's silent. People don't know about it. It's interesting to me, it, you know, and I, I say sometimes that, or I believe that there's folks that create the curriculum of what's going to be taught in schools they just don't want us to know about our history. I was told uh, I have also had the belief that one percenters, those that are wealthy, may the fact that they don't even have to be in the billionaire category, multimillionaires, it's not just a miseducation of Negroes, it's miseducation of poor people. They don't want people to understand about this co-op model is my belief, because if they understood about this co-op model, they could go out and start their own businesses joining collectively, cooperatively, learning how to do that, go out and start their own businesses, and then they make the profit. Fascinating. I never believed in this 40 acres and a mule. Even as a young kid, I just did not believe, and at the time it was white folks, but if anybody that had money is going to give it to the masses. That just didn't make sense to me. Uh, Early, early on, uh, maybe even as if the first time I have heard of it, but you know, there are some ways that people can go out and earn and make their own 40 acres and car or tractor. Mews don't work it anymore that much anymore. So it's like, how do we get and build wealth? Cooperative businesses, this cooperative economy is one way of showing folks how they can build their own wealth. And Dame Pauline Green from the International Cooperative Alliance said, she's a British chap, she said that cooperatives helps 
people to come out of poverty with dignity. It just helps people to come out of poverty with dignity. So how do you get that knowledge? Because there are people that really want to keep, I think it's more than just the Negro. Any poor people, they don't want them to be educated. They don't want you to know, me to know, that there's some options out there where you can control your own destiny, where you can create wealth. A gentleman by the name of Jim Joseph, who was the ambassador to South Africa, an African-American, when Mandela was uh, president for three years, and he was on the program. He said, you know, the programs that America has for the poor, blacks, whites, Latino, it doesn't make it for the poor. It helps people to survive. I mean, you give people welfare or food stamps, that help you to survive, but it doesn't help you to strive. It doesn't help you to create wealth. It doesn't help you to get, my mom used to talk about getting on your feet. My father, my grandfather, how do you get on your feet where you have more money, you can have savings at the end of the month, as opposed to having more months than you have money? And too often growing up, that's exactly what I, we as a family of 10, at one point in a three-bedroom home, there was my grandfather, my grandmother, my father, my mother, and six kids. One bathroom. Uh, before the bathroom, it was the outhouse. I, I remember that well. He did not like those big flies, saying word about snakes. So, you know, we come a long way because now in my life through education, through knowledge, I have more months than I have. I have more money than I have months. So it can happen in a generation or two, but it really takes knowledge. And too often people that are in power, people that have money, don't want you to know about ways of creating wealth. If you give you money, food stamps, uh, $7, $8 an hour, not even, don't even want to give you $10.50 an hour, then you have to spend it to survive. And you spend it in establishments that they have, they own, and it goes away from your communities very quickly. And the community doesn't grow. You don't grow. You don't get on your feet. You stay behind. And that's what happens to too many Americans you know, Martin Luther King said that if there's if you have 40 million people that are you know begging on welfare and so forth, there's something wrong with the system, and the system has to change. In my belief, the system from capitalism needs to go to cooperative cooperatives. One way, it can't go totally out of capitalism. It. But more and more cooperatives come into existence, more and more cooperatives. Then you have everyday people, everyday people creating wealth, everyday people with not necessarily any more than a high school education or not even having a high school education. You get the knowledge you need when you start in a co-op. You get the knowledge you need to run a business. And as Ruthie Wilder said on the program, that knowledge you learn about how to run your business, and she has, she's in Baltimore with a housing co-op, I think, she said 160 units. Uh, I don't know if it was a $2 million business. I can't remember the numbers, but she learned how to run a business. And her career was like with Metro, with the uh, driving of the trains. I don't know how much education she had, but I would suggest to you that her education, her formal education was not learning how to run a business, but she learned how to run her cooperative business and she's the president of it. And she said that when she learned the tools that she learned in running her business, she took to her life. So in running a housing corp, you have to know how to do deal with 
uh, reserves or savings that you save money today for when you have to replace the roof in five, 10, 20 years from now. Uh, so she has learned those things and she put them to use in her everyday life. Carter G. Wilson, no man knows what he can do until he tries is one of his quotes. I would suggest to you the first, one of the first persons that I had on the program October 2014, 2013, said that one of the reasons there are not more co-ops is because it's hard work. It's out straight out. It's hard work. And you know, if you don't, and I've seen this in managing uh, housing co-ops, that they really function once a person's mentality changes from a tenant to an owner. That change doesn't happen quickly for everybody, and some people it may never happen. But once you move from I can pick up the telephone and call somebody and they'll come and fix something even if I messed it up, if you're a tenant, then you're used to the landlord that you can call him. It doesn't mean he'll come and fix it, but you can call him to fix it. Once you get that you're an owner and that if you mess something up, you've got to fix it, That's how they, some people don't want that. They don't want that responsibility. But long reign, the research has shown that the rent stays a lot lower. For a housing co-op in Atlanta, the two-bedroom was $500 a month when they did this research a couple of years ago. Where in an apartment building, it was five to $800 a month. So when people know that they own it, they take better care of it. You have a better sense of community. There is community. In an apartment building, too often you may not even know your neighbor. But in a co-op, you get to know your neighbors and everybody looks out for each other. I like nosy neighbors now because that's one good sense that you can keep the crime down when people are watching out for stuff. And they said in this research that in co-ops, crime was down compared to apartment buildings. So once you know that you're an owner, once you know that you your decisions matter and not only in your household, but in the communities, all of the uh, households in the community, then you take different actions. You look out for each other. Crime is down. You take better care of your unit. Uh, you perhaps would turn off the water when you're brushing your teeth or shaving so that you don't have to pay for it. You eventually pay for it if you keep it on because you are the owner. So co-ops for a lot of, at the personal level and at the community level makes a lot more sense. Question is, why aren't there more? And I contend in one of our uh, persons on the, the told me I had a sinister view that there are people that don't want you to know. And I guess that sinister view comes from being black in America because there's too often in growing up uh, in the South during the sixties, during the riots uh, in high school that folks would call you the N word. And sometimes they would try to spit on you or do, or you know that they didn't want your best. And too often in my world, uh, I'll be 68 this year. In my world, uh, there's been too often that you try to do something, you do it your best, and you find out that there's somebody holding you back simply because of the color of your skin. It, it may be some other reason, like economics. They want that job. They don't want you to get it, so they'll lie on you or do something for so that you don't get it. But they'll use the color of the skin as a way of keeping you down. And I believe those actions are sinister. And I also believe, after this lady uh, said this on the air, that she knows rich people and they want people to grow go. And I, I think that's true, too, that there are some wealthy people that will, and that happened all the way through our history. There were wealthy people that wanted to see everybody have a fair shot, have a fair chance if they were willing to work 
and do it. Um, you know, even early on, Underground Railroad was a cooperative. Underground Railroad was people working together, whites and blacks. If it wasn't for the whites, the Underground Railroad would not have worked, where, where blacks were taken out of the slavery and out of the South uh, and going to different people's homes. And more often than not, <laughs> those homes were white folks. So you do have people that are wealthy that really want to see everybody grow and survive and have an equal chance. But I'd also say that there are a lot of people out there uh, that have money that don't want to see. They want to keep people down. And it's not just African-Americans. This miseducation of the Negro, that miseducation goes to a lot of folks, white people and blacks and, and Latin. So, you know, it, it's just a, it's a big thing this month, this Black History Month, understanding our history. We're going to take a break, but we're going to come back and talk more about Carter G. Wilson and this cooperative. Talk to you right now. Jessica Gordon Nimhard, uh, in her book, Collective Courage, A History of African-American Cooperative Economic Thought and Practice, you know, she, one of her summaries is that African-American cooperative movement has been and is a silent partner to the long civil rights movement. And that is so true. And we've had David Thompson on the air a couple of times who's writing another book on the same subject. Uh, just talking, and it goes all the way back. Uh, Frederick Douglass uh, got help from, from uh, cooperators in England. He went to England as a slave. Uh, they donated money and helped him get speak, speaking assignments. And so he could buy his freedom even before he came back. So he came back as a freedman with the help of cooperators uh, in England. And, and that also gets to the dichotomy of, you know, the, this, this constant struggle. You have England going around colonizing, trying to colonize the world. Europeans, particularly whether Spanish, Portuguese, Dutch, English, um, colonized meaning taking control over however they could do it. Um, just a sidebar, one of the reasons I like Ghanaians is the, that there was a tribe uh, in Ghana that the uh, British could not, uh, could not capture, and so they kept their own governance. And there's, I met the king once, I'm Ashante tribe. So, um, but for the most part, they colonized. So you have the British going around colonizing and miseducating folks, no matter who they were, wherever they were, so that they could get people to uh, think of them as as the superior, think of their culture as the way to live, and whatever, however you live, whatever your religions were, wherever your customs were, they were not the way. Uh, so you, you get you get all of this going, and at the same time, there were some English people that helped Frederick Douglass. So you, you had some English people, and I would suggest maybe the majority because they were a class system, and they believed that if you were in an upper class that you had certain rights. And they were, and no matter, if you were below the lower classes, you didn't have very much right, and they treated white people the same way. Um, and in England, there was a class system. 
India, anywhere that you went, anywhere the English went, they brought this class system. Now, I was taught in junior high and high school, social studies, that we don't have a class system here in the U.S. I've learned that that's just not true. It's not it's not uh, known as stringent and as in the British, and you can move, and Obama talks about the middle class, and in, in the U.S. you can move from poor class to middle class with education and hard work. But there's still a class system here. Uh, Bill Gates has the most money on the Ford 400 with $800 billion, $80 billion, $80 billion. You know, that's just staggering. If, if you get 4% interest off that $80 billion, that'd be $320 million a year. If my math is right, four times eight, 32, $320 million. He'd get $320, $320 million a year, whether he works or not. Okay. At 4%. And they said the average somewhere runs between four and 5%. Um, 5%, he would be at $400 million a year. And they can use that money. I mean, you might be paying 21% on your credit cards. Uh, you may pay paying 9% on your car. And they invest their money so they get a piece of that back. Jessica Gordon-Nimhard uh, also said that um, there has been a strong role for black women in this cooperative movement, a strong role for black women. And I find that in the housing, most of the presidents of housing co-ops that I have known or been around or been or managed have been women. Most of the board, if they have a five-member uh, member board, you may have three or four members are female. Uh, it's a strong role even now in, in the housing world. Uh, you do have some, some presidents that are, are men that are very strong, very good, but the majority are women. So also coming from Africa, this mutual aid society, um, you, you got um, – you, you would have Africans wanted to be buried and – Individually, they could not save money, so they would pool in their dollars in communities, and they create a mutual aid society, and and that would aid not only in borough, but it, it eventually became in aiding mutual aid in hospitals. Uh, and that sort of what, what I have been told came over from Western Africa, the Senegal and the Ghana and the Gambia, uh, and those places, Ivory Coast. So. You, you had this sort of working together, and we had Jim Joseph on uh, that I, I talked about earlier, and he talked about Ubuntu, uh, a Southern African tradition, uh, a way of being is what he called it. Uh, Ubuntu was that uh, I am because you are and you are because I am. It is a community group. It is a it is that we are working cooperatively together. So that was sort of in the nature, and you find that with Native Americans, uh which was called Indians, but Native Americans and tribes, that everybody worked together, everybody had their roles. In, in Alaska, the same thing. So that so that this cooperative way of working together is, is a way of life in a lot of different cultures. But it seems like from the European way is that this individual, this John Wayne, the Lone Ranger kind of thing. And 
you know, they they really worked in groups. That John Wayne, if you look at any movie, there was a bunch of folks around him, whether they were cavalry or on a ship. It was not him doing it by himself. He may have been the leader in his hierarchy uh, uh, governance, but it was not a individual kind of thing. That's it's a it, it's like it's it's not really true. This thing of the lone this individualist, but that's the way that uh, and Jim Joseph talking about it in South Africa and Southern Africa. It, they had this same that more of the whites had this this view of individualism. Uh, I am because I am as opposed to I am because you are and and we are because we are. We are a group. We're working together. Uh, and he said, uh, Jim Joseph said that uh, Mandela, the reason that he could work with the people that imprisoned him because he knew that if he hurt them, he was hurting himself. So because of his Ubuntu, this, this thing of this cooperative nature, um, treat your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. I mean, it's it's this whole sense of we are, this whole cooperative way of being. So I really like this co-op model, this co-op business model. Last week we had this young man, 34-year-old, Esteban Kelly on, talking about solidarity economics. And I've heard that a lot. I didn't get it until talking to him. Solidarity means that we are together. We're solid. We're working together. <laughs> it's, it's as we are cooperative. It's different uh, organizations that work cooperatively. Uh, work cooperatively together, solid together. We work each other. And the sixth principle of cooperative is cooperation among cooperatives. So you get the credit unions working with housing co-ops, maybe helping the affordable housing co-ops, such that when they have to get their down payment or their membership buy-in, it could be $2,000, $5,000, that they perhaps could borrow from the co-op because banks, a lot of times banks don't understand co-ops. They don't want to understand co-ops, I think. Uh, and their focus is on the individual and how much money you have or what your credit is. And in these affordable housing co-ops, too often people don't have good credit or don't have a lot of income and definitely don't have cash, uh, uh, wealth saved up. And a lot of times the banks, when they want to borrow money, they want to make sure that you have collateral that they can go after if they lose their money. So we're looking to try to see how we can get more cooperation with the credit unions and housing co-ops so that when somebody needs $2,000 or they want to buy a computer, they can go down to their local um Credit union, which is a cooperative, in both cases, housing co-ops and credit unions are called consumer co-ops. But working together, the solidarity economics, and and the benefits. I had a program after the president, that President Obama State of the Union message, and that program was all about everything that he wants to get. Um, not quite everything, but most of everything that he wants to accomplish in his State of the Union. He could do it cooperatively, this solidarity economics. Um, he hasn't talked about that yet, <laughs> but uh, perhaps one day he will. So Jessica Gordon Nimrod talked a lot about uh, when this cooperative model has worked. I mean, like the Great Depression in the 30s, you had perhaps your biggest growth of co-ops, black co-op development because of the economic need of people working together, 
and the organizational support. That's what makes it so good is that one person may have this skill set, another has another skill set. When they learn how to work together, they bring in different skill sets. So it's a better chance. Matter of fact, the statistics show that there's a lot less co-ops that go under because people are working together and they bring their different skill sets. They learn how to put them together. They can do much better. And there's a lot of room for co-ops uh, in today's world in the 21st century. You know, we'll be we'll we'll take another break. Uh, I get excited about this. I hope I don't sound too preachy, preachy. <laughs> but if I do, I hope you get the message and perhaps you want to start your own co-op. We'll be right back. Don't touch that dial. Fourteen fifty W O L. It will be ours. Oh, one day when the war is won, we will be sure. We will be. No man, no weapon formed against. Yes, glory is destined. Everyday women and men become legends. Sins that go against our skin become blessings. The movement is a rhythm to us. Freedom is like religion to us. Justice is juxtaposition in us. Justice for all just ain't specific enough. One son died, the spirit is revisiting us. True and living, living in us. Resistance is us. That's why Rosa sat on the bus. That's why we walked through Ferguson with our hands up. When it go down, we woman and man up. They say stay down and we stand up. Shots be on the ground. The camera panned up. King pointed to the mountaintop and we ran up. One day. When the glory comes, it will be ours. It will be ours. Oh, glory. glory. You know, the freedom is like religion to us. Justice for all is not enough. You know, it's not specific enough. Getting this education, there was a sign at uh, Greenbelt. Homes, Greenbelt's a 1,600-unit cooperative that said a cooperative gives people the tools they need to control their own destiny. If you really want to control your destiny and, you know, and, and, and get the knowledge you need, getting into a co-op is one way of doing it. Getting into a co-op can help you get the glory, get the, you know, it's, it's, it's like uh, where do you get the education if we've been miseducated in our schools and I was? If you're miseducated in our schools, where do you get the knowledge? How do you get the knowledge? Carter G. Woodson said that one way, there's two ways of getting knowledge. One is that what you get in formal education or somebody teaching you, and the other is what you get on your own. Dr. Jessica Nimhard, uh, Gordon Nimhard said that uh, a lot of times there was a study group. Before the co-op was formed, there was a study group. And people came together and they learned, they studied, they got knowledge. And in getting the knowledge, they were make, able to make choices that were best for them, where they can control their own destiny. They're no longer miseducated. They could create businesses, create organizations that help them 
And when they create them, most often the products or the services were better than, as good as, if not better than, the uh, competitors. And when they made profit, they got a chance to keep it. You know, we had people in here from NCBA, CLUSA, and they go around the world, and they were talking, a couple of them talking, and they said that one of the huge difference between a farmer that was in the co-op on one side of the street and a farmer that was in a co-op on the other side, one is the farmer in the co-op, their product looked better. They were greener. They were fresher. They were stronger. They weren't wilting. <coughs> And when the farmer was asked what was the major difference between being in a co-op and not, at first he pointed at the, the farmer across the street and his product, but he said that he could now feed his family for the whole year and have some left over. Where before he did not even he couldn't even make enough off the farm to feed his family to survive subsistence. Could not do it. More year than food, more year than money. And now by being in the co-op, they learn how to produce better products, better, better crops. Uh, and a lot of times, uh, these, these crops didn't use fertilizer. They were organic farms. They got more money for their crop. They got uh, different locations they could sell their crop, different markets they could send their crops to. So they could get more dollars to feed their family and have leftover to build wealth to perhaps grow their business. Freedom is like religion to us. Justice is not, it doesn't say it all. We learn resist. And you talk about Rosa Park sitting at the bus, in the front of the bus. Well, Rosa Park is not very well known, but Rosa Parks and a lot of the civil rights leaders went to a school called a Highlander School. And I really want to go there and study it more because I want to know what did they teach them at the Highlander School that they were not taught in their regular schools. And a little bit that I've gotten is they taught them about their civil rights. What were, are your rights as a citizen in the U.S.? What happens when you go vote? Why people don't want you to be able to vote? Really, the reason people don't want us to be able to vote is because if we don't vote, then they get to put into power who they want to put into power. And the people that then go to power will create programs and laws that help them. This is why the wealthy put so much money into politics. This is why the Koch brothers, K-O-C-H, will put so much money in for Republican uh, folks in the House and the Senate and in local uh, jurisdictions, states and, and county they want as many people in there that will create laws and create programs that help them get more money. I mean, they don't do it because they are philanthropic and they want to help these folks. No, the ultimate goal is to not have us to vote, not have us to put people in power that will benefit us, but to have put people in power that will benefit them. And it's unfortunate it's them and us, but that's what it, it happens that I never understand why the people that have all of this money want to get more. They don't want you to get it because if you get it, no, then they don't get it. It seems to be real simple when you can understand it. And it's taken a long time for me to get it. You know, and I talked that the top, the one percenters get 60% of the income that is produced by the U S 
So if one percenter, if the one percenters get six percent, then ninety nine percent get forty percent. And we have to share the forty percent. It also became clear why they don't want to raise the minimum wage. Because if they do raise the minimum wage, then they that would mean that either one or two things to happen that the people below will get more of the piece of the pie and they'll get less. So maybe the people, the 99 percenters would get 60% of the pie and they would get 40 and they don't want that and they don't need it. And the, or inflation that then you, the, the price you go from 6% and $6 an hour to 10, a 40% increase or 45% increase. And then all of a sudden, gas starts going up, food starts going up, so they can make more money. So there's a net gain after a five years or so that that growth doesn't make any difference. You cannot buy any more goods and services at $10 an hour than you did at 6 or 7 bucks an hour with inflation. And that's what ends up happening a lot of times when you see that the minimum wages are increased. The minimum wage is increased. So... They want theirs. So the question is, how do we get more people to get the knowledge they need to make informed decisions? I tell young people, now, I say, why do you go to school? And they say, get an education. I say, why do you get an education? A lot of times they don't. Oh, I had one young lady just tell me the other day, about 12 years old. She said, get an education so I can get a better job. I said, that's fantastic. Okay. You know why you want to get a better education. But I, I or she said, get an Education so you can get a degree, so you can get a better job. And I said to her, what, what I have found is you really want to get knowledge. Whether you get a degree or not, you really want knowledge. And too often, too many times, you have people with a lot of degrees but no knowledge. And at least they don't know how to put that knowledge into play, into work. So you want to get knowledge either by getting it formally and getting degrees or by joining a study group learning how to create cooperatives so you can get knowledge, so you can make better decisions, better choices for your life so you can live a better life and have control over your life and end up with more money than month. Savings, wealth that you can pass on for generations. And one of the things I found out is that I th of the top 10 people on the Forbes 400 list, three of them made their money on their own or with their corporations. Not they didn't make it on their own. But they made their money where the other seven have an er inherited money. And it seems like the ones that inherit their money really want to make sure that they can make more money off the inherited money. So they don't really want these uh, programs that help the everyday common person. They want programs in place that help them to cons both conserve their money, pay less taxes, and or get more money, get more interest, and pay less taxes. So... I really encourage you in listening to get into a study group. Um, I may want to start one of these study groups for, for cooperatives and learn how to create a co-op. One of the things that my employees and I are doing is turning Oaks Management, which is a property management company, into a worker-owned co-op. The worker-owned co-op is when the employees own the co-op. They make the decisions. They can both control it, they own it, and control it. If you have any comments or questions, you can call in at 
1-800-450-7876. If you want to talk about this miseducation of poor people, miseducation of the Negro, miseducation of everybody that uh, Carter G. Wilson said it, the oppressor, the person that's oppressing, the person that has the power, has always indoctrinated, taught the weak, the enslaved, the people that are in the lower classes, I'm adding these other things, but he's always indoctrinated the weak with his interpretation of the crimes of the strong, of the oppressor. So the, the history is his story. The history is anybody that's writing the history. They have written out of the history books about cooperatives and the role that cooperatives played in the civil rights movements, the role that cooperatives have played in creating wealth for African-Americans and people that are the weaker in the lower class classes. So the strong white folks, white men have always taught blacks and people in the lower class whatever they wanted them to know. This is ends up being the miseducation of the weak, the miseducation of the oppressed, and that has no color. The only difference really is, and when I boil it down, the common denominator when I taught math is that who has the money and who's going to get the money. And it's unfortunate that too often the people that have money want more and more and more and more money, which means they don't want you or I to get it. That is the, the oppressor. He says that Carter G. Wilson says it very well in his book, The Miseducation of the Negro. Um, Jeremiah Wright was at Shiloh Baptist Church this Sunday. That's my church. He was there last Sunday. Uh, we had our historically black college and university day so he was there and he was talking about the Philistines and the miseducation, if you recall Daniel when he went in the lion's den and he was comparing the miseducation of the Philistines with the miseducation of blacks. And I, and I looked, it doesn't make any difference. It goes all the way back. It makes no difference. It's those that have power want to keep people that don't have the power, the weak. They want to, don't want to teach them. They want to miseducate or they want to teach them exactly what they want the persons to know so they can maintain the power and keep control and keep getting the resource, resources, the money. Uh, if you really want to call in, you can call in at 1-800-450-7876. And uh, we're going to take our last break for this session. This is uh, 2015 Black History Month. We're talking about the father of black history, Carter G. Wilson, comparing what he has taught with what Dr. Nim, uh, Gordon Nimhard had talked about and others on the program. We'll be right back. Hope you're enjoying the show. News updates on the web at woldcnews.com. Information is power. This is why International Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program to give you the information that you need to join a co-op. Uh, you can join a, if you're not a member of a credit union, you can join a credit union now. They're 
used to be there would only be certain people that they each credit union was was uh, formed for. Now more and more they're letting other people come in. Uh, and so the National Corp Bank wants to give you the power that uh, the information that you need because information is power. Although if you get information, you don't use it, that's it's useless. It's the same as not having the information. So you have to put action to power. The same thing with faith. Uh, Jeremiah Wright had talked about the, the Philistines, Daniel, uh, Daniel and the lions then, they had faith. Those brothers had faith. But if you don't put that faith to work, it also says faith without work is dead. It's useless. So that's the same thing with this information. You have to put it to use in order to get something out of it and learning about cooperatives and then joining perhaps a study group or a group of people coming together to form one may be a way of using this information. John, how you doing this morning? Good morning. How you doing? I'm great. What, well, I, I've been listening to your show, your, your uh, show here, and I have a, a question to ask. Okay. Uh, it's, it's pertaining to, I guess you would call it the the uh, what is it the uh, misinformation of the black race. Yep. Uh, here in Washington, we have uh, some people celebrating uh, legalization of marijuana. We have others who are fearful of it. Okay. Uh, and I have a question: What is more important to the black race, money and wealth, or drugs. You, you can't have both. You can only have one. Which one would you take? And I'm going to hang up and let you answer that question. And think about Ward 8. Think about Ward 7. Uh, think about half of Ward 5 and uh, some of Ward 4. Because we're being plagued with some with some financial and... Uh... Hey, John, I think that's a, that is an excellent question. It's a little bit off the subject of cooperatives, but I got, I'm one of the people that don't like the legalization of marijuana. And I really don't like it in multifamily because different from alcohol, when somebody smokes marijuana, it comes from one apartment to the next. And so you can have the influence of marijuana on you or your family or your kids, and you're not smoking it. It's like the secondhand cigarette smoke. And I've experienced that being a property manager that this marijuana smoke, it goes throughout the unit. It, you can find it in the hallways and one apartment to the next. But, you know, I don't think your question, at least I, for me, it's not just what's most important to blacks. It's most what's important to whites, blacks, Latino, brown, yellow, green. I mean, what's most important to people? Is money and wealth more important or drugs? I mean, that, that answer, it seems to be a very easy answer. You're much more concerned about wealth and taking care of your family than you are drugs, unless they are drugs that, you know, are, are prescribed for uh, medical reasons. So that answer, I, I, I think your question must be much broader than that. But it's like, I don't like that the people of the District of Columbia has decided, this is a personal thing now, that have decided to legalize drugs and I've found that one of the reasons is in multifamily homes, if you're smoking in one apartment, the smoke goes over to another, if not to three or four apartments. And so you have secondhand smoke, just like cigarettes. And they said in some studies I've heard on cigarettes that secondhand smoke is worse for the 
uh, lungs than first-hand cigarettes. As bad as, if not worse than. So secondhand smoke, I don't like, and that's what you get with marijuana. Um, so I, I don't like it. I would like to see that that going d- down. But you know, what's more important, money and wealth, or money and health, or drugs? And that's an easy money and wealth. But the wealth goes, the 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 wealth goes. It's it it's spiritual wealth. It's economical uh, health, spiritual, emotional financial, what you're talking about, and, and money, uh, it's physical health, emotion. So it's all the different systems. Is Health is much more important than drugs unless drugs are used. And I had a friend that was blind, had uh, glaucoma, and he was prescribed marijuana early to try to stop it from going. It didn't stop it. He got high with his cookies and smoking. But uh, I, I don't like it. I don't like that at all. But thank you for your question. You know what we're in this in in this African this Black History Month, wealth is much more and health is much more important, and this miseducation of, and I've expanded that also. It's not just blacks, Negro, Philistines, it's everybody. It's how do you how do you get a a group of people to do what you want them to do. Um, when you control a man's thinking, you do not have to worry about his actions. No man knows what he can do until he tries. So how do you get people to know? Again, this is why National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program, is to get people to know about co-ops so that they can get the education that they need to control their destiny. They can get the education that they need to create wealth they can get the education that they need, that they can make informed decisions. They can get the knowledge they need to make informed decisions, no matter how much formal education you have or don't have. Uh, Carter G. Woodson had trained himself through the age, I think, 20. Uh, maybe he was 17. He, 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 he taught himself, and then he went and got a high school degree and got it in 20. Then in 1912, he got a Ph.D. from Harvard. He was the second person to get the second African-American to get a degree from Harvard, W.E.B. Du Bois being the first, and then W.E.B. Du Bois talked about co-ops. He advocated for co-ops. Working together. My father used to say that too often blacks were like crabs in a barrel. I don't know if you've heard this quote before, and that means that when one crab sees another crab climbing out of the barrel, they'll reach up and grit them and pull them back down. You know, I, I think that happens with anybody that don't like themselves, that don't care for themselves. And that's one of the things, if you read this letter from Lynch, uh, Lynch was, a, uh, I, I think he came from Barbados or somewhere, and he was teaching the whites here that what you have to do is get the blacks to uh, think only of the whites as people in power and that have any kind of knowledge that they are superior. And you get the black women to to be against the black men. You get the, the light skins to be against the black darker skins. And and you keep this division. And he said that would last for 400 years. It would last forever and ever kind of thing. And that's what I think you see happen too often with blacks. And we think that it would be hard for us to come together because of that. But see, in these study groups, you learn 
how to work together, how to solve problems together, how when there is disagreement and there is going to be disagreement. I've learned that all of my life. When there is disagreement, you learn how to resolve the disagreement without punching each other and without hurting each other. It, you, you stay on the behavior or the disagreement and not on the person. So you learn these things that you learn how to work together, which whites, the oppressor, have taught us year in and year out, this division. So we've been taught that even though if we came from West Africa, Southern Africa, in our in our history, in our cultures, it was I am because you are and you are because I am. Remember, they they did everything that they could. The miseducation of the Negro, the miseducation of the Philistine was to make you to learn their language, their culture, make them right and our cultures wrong. So looking out for the individual for self, as opposed to looking out for your neighbor and self, looking out for people down the street in your communities. How do you work together so that when the tide rises, everybody rise, as opposed to trying to be on the boat by yourself or the tide may rise, but you get it all and other people get very little. You get 60% and one percenters get 60% of the income and 99 percenters the majority of the population gets split up 40% of the nation's income. How do we get the laws of the tax laws that Bush put in place that support the rich? How do we get those turned? It, re it really means that we have to get the knowledge and we have to get out and vote and we have to put people in place that will produce the programs and the laws that protect the people. Seems simple. And I've, and I've got that the reason that so many whites will vote for people that, like the rich would want to put in place is because they've been miseducated also. It's not just the miseducation of the Negro. It's not just the miseducation of the Philistines. It's the miseducation of the poor folks, of the folks in the lower class, middle class and lower, miseducation of. So we get this education change, get people to vote so we can get the people in place that will create the policies and procedures. And this will not happen overnight, but we can make strides in the next election to get people in place that will create policies and procedures that will help the majority of the people. HUD programs, they create apartment buildings now, not co-ops. Who owns the apartment buildings? Not the poor. It's the rich. They make more and more money off of government funds. They get tax breaks. And they talk about that the rich more often pay less on a percentage of taxes than their secretaries or people that work for them pay a lot less. So I would like to see them pay the same. Uh, I would like for it to be fair and it, the tax laws are not fair now. You know, we'll be back next week. The hour has gone. Um, this month will be gone. This a uh, black history month. But as somebody said, this black uh, history month is every day. If you need to contact me, you can contact me at Vernon, V-O, V as in Oscar, O as in V, and Victor, O as in Oscar, at oaksmanagement.com, O-A-K-E-S management.com. We'll see you next Thursday. Thanks a lot for listening. 1450 W-O-L.